Uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 today. Ephesians chapter 4. The other thing, let me also uh, thank uh, Tim and Joanne Cody last week. They took all of the uh, donations of food uh, that were brought in to the rescue mission on their way home because the rescue mission is, li- they literally drive by the rescue mission on the way home. So Tim and Joanne were kind enough to take that last week. That is an ongoing thing for the rescue mission. If you have a little extra money in your food budget and pick up a few can items uh, from time to time and you want to donate that to the rescue mission, I'm sure they will welcome that. And if you bring it here, we'll make sure it gets there, okay? So as, as the weeks and months go on, uh, I, I know that is an ongoing need there, correct? Amen. So if you can, uh, stand with me as we read God's Word, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for the reminder from your servant, Paul, that we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of the salvation that has been granted to us through the blood of your Son. Wow. That is something that is a mystery beyond us that this letter to the Ephesians reminds us of, God. And I pray as we look at these words today from you, that you would stir up in each and every one of us an understanding of exactly how big of a responsibility you have called us to as your people. It's not that we must entertain your wishes and your desires as much as we are to serve you, God, through your church in a manner that is, that is grateful, in a manner that we have an expectation of us. Not that we can do this on our own. That's the mystery here, God. Through the blood of your Son and through the pouring out of your Spirit, are we only able to come close to your grace. And so God, teach us this morning what it means to walk worthy. What does it mean to be your people? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. God bless you guys. The Apostle Paul, finishing out chapter 3 last week, we looked at his prayer to the church as he prayed that those who were hearing these words would understand the depth of the love of Christ for his people. And without God's love poured out through the blood of Jesus, there is no way that we could know Christ. There is no way that we could even interpret Scripture apart from the love of Jesus Christ. The mystery of the gospel requires that we participate in and have God's love poured out in us through His Spirit. Wow. Now we start in chapter 4. The latter half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are Paul's exhortations to now apply what he has laid out in the first three chapters. This is a very common practice for Paul 
in the uh, letters in the New Testament. When Paul writes to any of the churches uh, of the first century, Paul, he has a a two-part model. The first part of the letter is always laying out exactly what it is the gospel is all about, laying out the theological mysteries of of the church and of Christ's blood for us. And then the second half of the letters are always, okay, now here's how, it, here's how it looks. First half is what God does for us through the blood of Christ, the mysteries of the gospel. The second half of the letter is always, okay, now it's time to put it into practice. So now we're entering into these last chapters of the book of Ephesians where Paul is not giving us commands for how to behave as much as it is an unpacking of, okay, here is what, God's grace poured out in you looks like in your everyday living, right? It is impossible for anyone to be a true Christian apart from God's grace, amen? Now, many people could look at the second half of Ephesians and say, okay, if we just look like this and do this and and put up the, the facade, then everyone will think we're a Christian and we'll feel good about ourselves, But we cannot forget what Paul lays out in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He lays out very clearly to the Gentile Christians here in Ephesus, those who were not born into God's chosen race and nation of Israel, they have now been adopted into God's family through the blood of Christ. And that was the mystery of the gospel, that from the very beginning God intended this to happen, that he would, through his people, the nation of Israel, come forth a Messiah that would redeem all humanity. But not all of humanity will be named in the family of God. Only those who are bought by the blood, those who are forgiven of their sin, they are the only ones who carry the name of God as, his, as our Father. We can only call God Father if we are saved by the blood of Jesus. We cannot call him Father apart from that. And so now, in chapter 4, Paul is now going to begin to lay out, okay, Gentile Christians, here's what this looks like. Here's what it looks like to be part of God's family. Here's what it looks like, this love of Christ that is full within you, that is a mystery to you, that has fully changed you from who you were. Now, here is what you're going to look like to everyone around you. Something you can't manufacture. It's only the genuine love of Christ that causes this to be. And so in verse 1, Paul now exhorts the church and reminds them of where he is. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, reminding them that as he's writing this letter, he himself is in prison for preaching the gospel and for living out the gospel. I am a prisoner for God. I am a prisoner for the name of Christ. And as I write this to you, remember where I am. It's not as if Paul is somehow gloating, look at me and my pride. I have sacrificed everything and now I'm in in, in prison for the Lord. Look how holy I am. That's not Paul's attitude here. Paul is actually expressing a humility here because he begins to talk about in these next verses what it looks like to walk in the manner worthy of the calling. And nowhere is pride and arrogance a part of that. So Paul, in reminding the church that he is a prisoner, 
He's reminding them how humble and broken his situation is. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. So in other words, in verse 1, as he's encouraging the church in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ, it's as if he's saying, look at my example. I am walking as a Christian, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, worthy of the name because I am broken and I am in prison for the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy. Have you ever heard that? Has anyone ever exhorted you, Christians, to walk in a manner worthy? What does that mean? Right? Has anyone ever said, you have been bought with a price. You carry the name of Christ. You claim Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are actually claiming his name by saying, I am a Christian. What does that mean to walk as if you're worthy? The very first thing we have to understand about the word worthy is that in order to be worthy of the name of Christ we have to remember that not one of us are worthy of the name of Christ. Amen? Anyone who comes to salvation in Jesus Christ with an arrogant, look at me, Jesus, I am walking the aisle and shaking the preacher's hand. Oh, how good I am. Oh, look at me, Jesus. I come to church every Sunday, and boy, I write the biggest tithe check of everybody in the church, and even though I don't tell them, boy, they know it. Right? Is there an attitude within us when we come to Christ of humility, knowing that we are not worthy of the name. It is only through the brokenness of the Spirit that Christ can begin to change us. And so that's the first understanding of being able to walk worthy as we then work in verse 2 here in a minute about being humble. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The very end of verse 1 there reminds the Christian that we do not come to Christ on our own power. We have been called by the blood of Christ through the Holy Spirit to repentance. It is something that has been brought to us through the generosity and the grace of God. He chased us down because he loved us enough to draw us out of our sin. He called us to repentance. And anyone who gives a genuine testimony of their salvation, you can see the difference between those who are genuine Christians and those who are not in their testimony. Those who are not Christians will say, well, here's what I did. And then they'll go through the list of everything that they did. But the genuine Christian testimony is, I didn't do anything. It was God who changed me. It was God who rescued me from my sin, who stirred up within me an understanding that I'm not worthy. I don't know what happened, but God reached down and grabbed me. That's a genuine testimony. Amen? And so Paul here in verse 1 is reminding the church in Ephesus, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, reminding them that they are not Christians of their own making. God himself has made you who you are, and as such, walk worthily in that calling. To walk in this context and throughout all of Scripture literally means how do you live out this life? How do you live out this calling that you've been called to? How do you live like a Christian who is worthy of the name of Christ? Have you ever been asked that question? Really, how how do you live as a Christian? 
Is it just coming to church once a week? What about tomorrow? Actually, not even just tomorrow morning. How about this afternoon? When we leave here as Christians after our time of worship and we go back to our homes this afternoon, what is your life like? Is it anything like your attitude and your mindset when you're in church? What's on your television this afternoon? What's on your internet computer screen this afternoon? What's on your mobile phone this afternoon? What's on your mind this afternoon? Are we walking worthy of the name of Jesus Christ? How do we live this out? Verses 2 and 3 shows us a list of five things here that Paul says, here's what it looks like to walk worthy. And again, we have to be reminded that Paul is not saying, if you just act like this in verses 2 and 3, then you'll be a Christian. It's no, because you are a Christian, here is what it looks like. Big difference. Because you have been called to a a life of Jesus Christ, here's what it looks like. Number one, verse two, walk with humility. Walk with humility. Does anybody know what it means to be humble? You know, we all know the difference between someone who is genuinely humble and somebody who is arrogant and prideful, don't we? Is it possible, possible to be so humble that you're arrogant? Is it, so, is it possible to be so humble that you want everybody to know how humble you are? Amen? We know folks like that? Absolutely. Here's the thing about the idea of being humble here from the Apostle Paul. In this time of writing this, this letter to the Ephesians, it, it was a very, okay, it was the Roman world, but it was still a very strongly influenced Greek-speaking culture. The Greeks still dominated the world at that time with their language and their literature and their philosophy. And the Romans really just kind of adopted what the Greeks did and and didn't really change much. The Roman mythologies were very much in line with the Greek mythologies. Even though Rome spoke Latin and, of course, Greek spoke Greek, they, they... Still had a lot of commonalities. But this idea of humility was literally a foreign concept in Greek. There is not a single Greek word for the word to be humble. It just does not exist. And you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute. The New Testament is written in Greek, Pastor. How come we have a word for humble here? Here's why we have a word for humble in the New Testament epistles. It's because the Christians, in order to describe what it means to be a Christian walking in humility, literally had to create their own word in Greek because there was no word in Greek to describe humble. Matter of fact, they, they took several different Greek words and, 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 uh, and just merged them together to try to describe humble. It's kind of like the English word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Right? Y'all know that word? What does supercalifragilisticexpialidocious mean? First of all, you're impressed with the fact that I can say that. But when you hear the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, you don't necessarily have to have a definition. You know it's just a fun word. It means to be fun, right? It's a word that was made up. Imagine the same kind of language here in Greek. The Christians had to create a similar type word to understand what humble was. Not a fun word, but a word that really ex- described what it meant to be humble because it was, a, it was a foreign idea in the Greek thinking. 
It was a foreign idea in Roman culture to be humble. Matter of fact, anyone who was humble at this time of, of human existence would have been seen some, as somebody who was less than. They're not worthy of our attention because they're, what is the, they're, not, they're not proud of themselves. They're not trying to become better than who they are. They're not trying to stand up over everybody else. That's really what the Greek and the Roman culture was. Try to be better than everybody else. Improve yourself so that you're better than everybody else. That was how the mindset was. That's really no different than today, is it? What is social media, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat? What, what's, the, what's the newest ones, kids? I know Facebook is for old people now. Uh, what, what is it that young kids do now? They still do Instagram, Katie? You're, you're the closest teenager we've got, right? You see where we're going? Right, so what is, what is at the basis of social media? It's to make myself look better than I really am, if you think about it, Right? Look at me. Don't ask me who I really am on the inside. Just look at my outside and how gorgeous I can make myself with my phone. Amen? So it's nothing different. This is very foundational to the human condition. We want ourselves to be better than what we really are. And if it means faking it, that's what it takes. This idea here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, when Paul says to walk worthy of the name of Christ, the very first thing he says is walk with humility. And he literally had to use a word that did not exist in the Greek language that had to be defined what humility was. Now, I'm not going to try to stand here and tell you what the Greek word, I've got it, but I won't say it. Because it's one of those things that You have to understand, as he's writing this about humility, it's a foreign concept to the the culture of the day. And Paul says this again in Acts chapter 20, verse 19, if you want to write this down. He talks about about his humility in preaching the gospel. It's used a few other times in the New Testament. But the idea of humility is something that is uniquely Christian. It was only the Christian faith that even introduced the idea of humility into the human knowledge bank. The idea of humility really did not exist before Christ. That's a, that's a mind-blowing reality. When you look back in the history of human thought and human culture, the idea of humility didn't exist it was Jesus Christ who, is, who introduced this idea of being humble into the world. So that's the first and singular primary responsibility for walking worthy in the name of Christ is to be humble. And to walk with gentleness. To walk with humility and gentleness. What does it mean to be gentle? Of course, gentleness is a form of humility. Humility is necessary in order for us to be gentle. Because to be gentle means that we do not want what we want over everybody. We're not imposing our will upon other people. We are being gentle with them. See, because when we're being forceful with others, we're actually forcing our will upon them. And if they do not line up with our understanding of who they're supposed to be, then we're going to bully them into it if we're not careful. Shame them into doing what we want them to do. 
Anybody guilty of that? Why don't you listen to me? I know better uh, than you do about what God wants you to do. So you better do it or you're going to be not a good Christian because you're not listening to me. Right? This idea of gentleness, treating each other with respect and not being forceful and prideful or being a bully, but being gentle. Walking in a manner worthy of Christ means to be humble and gentle and patient. Walk with all humility and gentleness and patience. I don't know about you, but patience is one of those things that God has really over the years shown me how to be, and he does so by putting me in situations where it's impossible to be patient. Anybody here impatient? There was a time in my younger years where if I had to stand in line at the checkout, this was before they had self-checkout and before that you could buy things on your phone and just walk out the door. This, you had to stand in the checkout line, and boy, if I had to be somewhere, and, I, and there was somebody up in front who had coupons, And I had to stand in line for more than 10 minutes. Man. Anybody been there? Okay. Patience is one of these things. These, this, this, the only way to be patient, folks, is to actually walk in the manner worthy of Jesus Christ because is Jesus himself not patient? Is God the Father not patient with a fallen sinful humanity? How do we even know what patience is apart from God himself through his son, Jesus Christ? So we must walk with humility and gentleness toward each other and, and, and other people and with patience. God, I, I promise you, God will test your patience by putting people in your life that are impossible to be patient with. Amen. He'll teach you that quickly. And lastly, in verse 2, he says, Walk with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with each other in love. Now, how does this work? Number one, it comes directly from the love that Jesus Christ shows in his self-sacrifice for us. In order to understand what love is, we need to know that love is not this thing that the ancient Greek world and the Roman world knew. Love is this erotic love where I am satisfying my physical desires and passions. Love is not this demanding thing of others. You better love me and show me how much you love me or I'm not going to love you back. This idea of love here, bearing with one another in love. See, to bear with one another is just an expression of patience and gentleness, isn't it? It's a further expression of what it means to be humble. I will be humble and not by looking for my own self-aggrandizement. I am going to be humble and place myself lower than other people, and I'm going to be gentle with them, and I'm going to be patient with them, and in the process, I will be able to bear with them in love. Amen. That's interesting here, this idea of love. Of course, the Greek word here is the agape love we're talking about, but we have to understand what this means. This implies a love that is actually expressed with the world we live in. It's, not, I mean, it's, it's a two-part understanding of love. Turn with me to Matthew 22, and we're going to understand what's being implied here. Matthew chapter 22. 
beginning in verse 36. This is the account of Jesus being talking with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and a, a young lawyer comes to him. Remember, a long, young lawyer who was of the line of the Pharisees. In other words, this lawyer would have known the Mosaic law, and he comes to Jesus to test him. And in Matthew 22, verse 36, Jesus tells us what love is. Verse 36, this young lawyer says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? So the question of what is the greatest commandment? Verse 37, And he, being Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is doing here in Matthew 22 is defining correctly and defining purely what the original greatest commandment of the Mosaic law really meant. And the greatest commandment of the Mosaic law can be read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and Jesus really repeats it here. You, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and Deuteronomy says, and might. But here, Paul, uh, Jesus tells this young lawyer, who would have been an intellectual thinker, who understood all of the details of the Mosaic law. He, was a, he, was a, he worked with his mind. Here's what Jesus says. He takes the greatest commandment, and he says, You, lawyer, shall love the Lord your God with your soul, and with your mind. The second part of this, now Jesus adds to it, and he's not adding anything new, because the second part of this commandment here in Matthew 22 is actually a repetition um, uh, of Leviticus chapter 19, where God says, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, you've got a two-part command here. This is the law, this is the law of love in the New Testament. The law of love in the Christian tradition means, number one, you must love the Lord your God with everything that you are. And that is impossible to do apart from God calling you to love Him. God loves us first, and then and only then do we even know what it means to love Him back. But that doesn't mean that we keep this Christian life just between me and God and nobody else. It now says in Matthew 22, verse 39, as well as Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's a two-part to the one command of the law of love that Paul is writing about in Ephesians chapter 4. In order to bear with one another in love means to be able to love your neighbor as yourself. Matter of fact, in the Greek here, we've got the word agape love, but when the Greek New Testament was translated into the Latin Vulgate that the Catholic Church used for many, many centuries in the medieval period, they actually took this word here. Agape was defined, was actually, there was two different Latin words that they would use for love depending on the application. And this particular application, they used the idea of love in the Latin, meaning to love others outside of yourself. To, in other words, you've got two aspects of love here. You've got the vertical love between you and God, and then you've got the horizontal love between you and everybody else. And the horizontal love cannot happen unless the vertical love is in place. 
That's what Paul's talking about here, about bearing with each other in love. It means to love your neighbor the horizontal way. Allow the love that God pours out in you to not just stay with you, but it now needs to go out horizontally to, to your neighbors, to your loved ones, to your church family, to all of the world, to even love those who are unlovable. Amen? That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the name. And in verse 3 here of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul now closes this, part, this small section out. He says, in order to be humble and gentle and patient and loving one another, you then are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Next week we'll be expanding here on beginning in verse 4 where Paul is talking about what it means to be unified in the body of Christ. What it means to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You know, it's hard to be unified in one direction, isn't it? Especially when you've got a bunch of Christian folk around. Right? We have that joke that you have to go to the committee to figure out what we need to think about before we can actually talk about it. And so that committee who wants to understand what we talk about has to then go to the committee of committees to figure out if the committee of committees can allow the committee to figure out what we talk about. Then and only then do you start working on it. And then about 12 months later, after you talk about it in the committee, do you then go back for permission to now talk about it some more? Amen? But not here, as my wife is reminding me. We are not going to have committees upon committees upon committees. We're going to be unified in love as a church so that we are all on one page and one direction, and we're unified in the body of love. Paul says, as the church Christians, as Gentile Christians especially, you are coming from a tradition where there is no understanding of humility and love. If anything, it's all about self-pride and self-advancement in the Greek and Roman culture. You're coming out of that into a unique place in the church, and this is what it looks like to walk worthy in the manner of Christ. It means to love each other, to be patient with each other, and to be humble with each other and gentle with each other so that the unity of God's Spirit within you binds you together in peace so that it is such a unique witness to your neighbors and such a unique witness to your community. Everybody looks at you and scratches their head and thinks, man, they're weird. Literally. The name Christian in the church of Antioch was actually a derogatory name toward those who were gathering in the name of Christ because the people in Antioch had no other name to call them because it was such a mix of diverse cultures and languages and backgrounds and economic statuses. They were all getting along together, and that was so foreign. And when the church gets together, wow, (laughs) there is such a unique transformation that the world stands there and says, who is that? And so that's my prayer for us as Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. That's my prayer for you. This is an extension, really, of Paul's closing prayer in chapter 3. Now he's saying, here's what it looks like. (laughs) To love each other in such a way that your neighbors pay attention because it's not about you, it's about them. It's not about a facade of holiness. It's genuine holiness. Isn't that amazing? And here's the truth folks, 
Whenever that happens, there's a good chance that the, the gathering of Christians who are genuine is not going to be a very large group. Jesus makes that very clear. Wide is the path to destruction and narrow is the way to life. There are very few people who actually gather together in genuine respect for the gospel and for each other in such a way that it is so real that there is no room for fake. The truth is that's probably going to be a small number. That's just biblical. And so we as a church moving forward this year in 2019, we have a lot to pray about. We have always, I think there's, just, there's been a, an agreement amongst all of us, and this is what I love about what God has done here in the last couple of years, is that he has brought people together who really want a genuine church. They're not church The people who are here are not church hopping. The people here are genuine people looking for a loving congregation. And some of you in this room have not been part of a church in a long time before this group came together. We've got some people in this room right now. You may not be regularly attending a church at all, but you're here. I hope and pray that Sovereign Grace Baptist Church is that church that everybody says they're genuine. They're the real deal. Amen? How do we walk worthy of the name of Christ? Paul is beginning to show us here in chapter 4. And as we continue on in this chapter over the next couple of weeks, I want us to really ponder what does Ephesians chapter 4 tell us. It's not a roadmap of, of a checkoff list to, to look like a church so that the world doesn't see the ugly underbelly. We want to be genuine. And that means whenever the, 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 the underbelly that is ugly and doesn't want to be seen, whenever the underbelly reveals itself, we need to expose it so that the world sees it, that we deal with it, and we don't allow it to fester. We're genuine. Amen? Amen. At this time, as we close out the sermon, I want us to now shift into a mindset of coming to the Lord's table. We do this on the first Sunday of every month, and I know we've got food in the back that's waiting to be eaten. Amen? We always come to the Lord's table as a church, and then we fellowship together around the table, and everybody participates. And I am so glad we've got some great cooks in this church. God has blessed us with you. Amen? But before we come and eat the, the lunch meal, we want to remember exactly what Christ has done for us. And in so doing, we give honor to his name. And we continue to live out what it means to be a Christian. As we prepare the elements and begin to distribute them. Yeah, bring her on up. That's fine. As we begin to think this through and pray through this, before we take the bread and before we take the juice, I want to encourage us all to spend these next few minutes in an attitude of of humble prayer an attitude of humility before the throne, an attitude that is uniquely Christian because the world can't fathom what it means to be humble. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells the Corinthian church before they come together at the Lord's table, 
He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Remember, we just looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, those, in other words, those who are not living and walking in a worthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Although it is true that no one is worthy, this is part of the, uh, the responsibility for the Lord's table, that we must approach this time in a worthy manner, and we must understand that that comes directly from the love of Christ. If we are not walking in a worthy manner with the Lord at this moment, then it is always cautionary to not partake in the Lord's table. Because if we do, then we will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Whatever might be on your heart that is keeping you from the Lord, deal with that as we partake of the Lord's table right now. We're going to enter into a time of prayer, and I will be distributing the elements to you. Please take one piece of bread and one cup of juice. Hold those, and we will partake of that together. The Apostle Paul, in speaking about the Lord's table, says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let me pray for us right now. Father God Almighty, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the fact that your Son, Jesus Christ, died for us. We are unworthy of your love and of your forgiveness. But you loved us anyway. And you provided forgiveness through the blood of your Son. And for that, God, we thank you for this gift of remembrance that Jesus gives us to take the bread as a sign of his body, and to take the juice as a sign of his blood, and to remind us that we are worthy through your calling to salvation. So please bless this time, God, and bring to our minds the remembrance of this this precious, precious gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take the bread. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Please take it. Amen. Amen. Are all hearts clear? God bless you.